We are progressing through this chapter, Colossians chapter 3. We saw how there were things, behaviors, actions that we are to put off. And he began the chapter in in verse 1 by the reorienting of our thinking. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Keep seeking these things above. Set your mind on these things. And so to think heavenly then is to not then dwell upon those things that are not heavenly. The things that are not conducted or do not take place in heaven and not to participate in those things so he tells us in verses 5 and on through uh, 10 those things that we are to put off those things that do not take place in heaven, these things that are, are earthly and sinful that we should not have anything to do with because our citizenship is in heaven and we should think like heavenly people. Not forgetting that we are on earth, of course, and we are to do the best that we can in the places that we are, but to always keep in mind that this is always a temporary situation. And so in verses 5 through 10, there are listed the things that we are put to side. And as we read them, it is if he is covering five of the Ten Commandments. And then beginning at verse 12, as we saw last week, as the elect of God, those who are chosen by him for salvation, there's a, thing, there's a list of things that we are to put on. And that list we looked at last week culminating that in above all things he says to put on is to put on love. So after contrasting what to put off with what to put on, he comes up with what we could say are two lets in in verses 15 and 16. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in in you richly. Now this will be followed up in what we are to do and and, uh, how we are to do it. But we could say, uh, first we look at these two lets. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now last week we, we touched on this just a little bit and we referred to what Jesus had to say in John 14 in verse 27 when Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now that peace, that peace he was talking about is peace with God. It is peace with his character. This is one thing sometimes I don't think we give a whole lot of credence to. But from the beginning, from our first parents, we are somewhat suspectful of God. Sometimes we we even say, I wonder what God is up to. I mean, parents talk about their children that way when their children are quiet. What are they up to? 
Because, and there's suspicion in that statement. And for us, when we make a statement like that, we may not be saying, I don't trust God, but there's that little bit of, what is he up to? What is he doing? Because the circumstances and the things that we see don't seem to gel with what we would personally think God would do. But again, this peace with God means peace with his character. Peace with his character. That our default position is always going to be that God is good. And so whatever God does, there's goodness in it. Even if it seems evil to us. Even if it seems contrary to to what we think and how we think. God does not think as we think. God is perfectly holy. God does everything perfect. And everything in righteousness. And everything in holiness and his character is good and so that puts us at peace with his workings and at peace with his plan it's the peace of God that he has established with us and among us and this is the peace that is to reign in our hearts and this is the key concept here in light of the old nature that remains in us, the remaining sin that is in us. That old nature that would have us to dwell on the things that it likes that go contrary to God, the things that we're supposed to put off In contrast, the peace of God is to be that which reigns instead. As we've said before, you may not be able to stop every thought that pops into your head, but you're certainly able to deal with that thought when it comes in. You're certainly able to put it off and set it away and put it out of your mind. It's what happens when the thought comes in. What, What do we do with it? That's where we can have a problem. So let that peace of God rule over other worldly, fleshly affections. And note he writes, in your hearts, because that's where the conflict centers. Jesus said, where do all these uh, terrible things come from? Well, they come from the heart. Where do words come from? The words come from our heart. Same place, thoughts come from. That's why we're told constantly to guard our hearts. If we look at Philippians 4 and verses 6 through 7, and Paul writes, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that peace of God works on our behalf and it actually sets up and will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, as we were just talking about before, you can have thoughts that pop into your head that you just could not 
imagine were going to come, they're not things that you conjured up. They just pop up. Well, you have something that you can do with that. And Paul, in verse 8, says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So this peace, this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts through Christ Jesus. And as we do this, we substitute the ugly and ungodly with, as we're told in verse 8, the things to meditate. Meditate on these things. Again, uh, Things, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, the interesting part of this, it's a very good thing to do. We're supposed to do this. But how hard it is for us to do in our old nature, in our flesh. Just just stop and try to do it yourself. Not right now, but afterward. Just sit down for a few minutes and just try to set your mind on the things that are, are noble and true and pure and lovely and good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. See how well you do. See how much you come up with. You see, we go contrary every single day. We're so used to seeing the negative. We're so used to having it thrust upon us that we almost cannot begin to think about and set our thoughts on things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. It can be difficult for us Finding something that answers to these eight qualities. But you know, I can think of one thing right away. The Lord Jesus Christ. The peace he writes about here in Colossians 3. A peace to which you were called. You were not called to wrath. You're not called to anger or malice. You have been reconciled. God has reconciled us to himself in Christ in one body. Which means we cannot be in a state of agreement with God and disagreement with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he adds, be thankful. And be thankful. He's really put it on us in these verses. <laughs> when we stop to think, we got to think about all these things that are lovely and passionate and beautiful and all, all these other things that go along with it. And then at the same time, we are to be thankful. These are things that just are so contrary to the current, the current American mindset.
The word translated uh, thankful, eucharistos, in Greek, it means mindful of favors, grateful, but it also can mean pleasing and agreeable. We might even say <clears throat> amiable. So when he, he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body and be thankful, be amiable. Thankful people have to be friendly or agreeable people because that's in their nature to think that way. And amiable seems to fit here very, very well. A thankful heart must also be an amiable heart. Now, how can you imagine a, a thankful heart being a wrathful heart? How can you imagine a person who's just got done being thankful for so many things now turning in anger? How can you be thankful in anger? And then he gives the command in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Well, that command in verse 16 actually is what will help us carry out that which is in verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. By the way, those eight qualities uh, that we were talking about, these are all found uh, right here in this book. We first note that he uses the phrase, the word of Christ. Now, this is the first time that Paul uses it. and the only time he uses it. And we see how we are to view all of Scripture as the word of Christ. But the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the word of Christ can also mean the gospel of Christ, of which Christ is the author of which he also was the preacher, if you will. He's the subject. It is the word concerning him. And he said, that word of Christ is to dwell in you, that is to take up residence in us, and to do so richly. Now that it's taken up entry, it has to have a prominent and permanent place. Not as a, an occasional guest, but as a full-time resident. And how is it to dwell in us? The adverb richly, plentifully, abundantly, which also means in a balanced way, not just Certain books. There was one who, who said, oh, I, I just enjoy Daniel and Revelation. Those are the ones I read all the time. Well, you're unbalanced. You're unbalanced with you. I heard another say, I've been reading Daniel for the last two years. You're unbalanced. You're unbalanced. God didn't give us 66 books, so we look at one or two. All those 66 books have to come together to give us the full picture. It 
if you just reading one book like this man said, I've been reading Daniel for two years. Then you don't understand Daniel. You don't understand it. And by the way, most people don't. All these fellows running around today. Oh, Daniel, you know what it's all about the second coming? No, it isn't. No, it's not. Daniel writes, the greatest majority of what he writes is about the first coming of Christ. Not the second coming. But there's so many confuse that. You see, the problem with so many of these, these people who do these sort of things is they try to interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament. So this is like you take, well, I've got a wagon, and it's loaded with hay, and I've got one mule to pull that wagon or move that wagon. What are you going to do? Are you going to put the mule on the back of the wagon and try to make him push? Or are you going to put the mule in the front of the wagon and make him pull? When you put the mule in the back of the wagon, that's what people who ter- interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament, that's what they're doing. they got the mule in the back. And they're not getting anywhere. The Old Testament is, is interpreted by the New. The New is in the Old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. You see, so it's the New Testament telling us. And if you read the New Testament, that just comes out so clearly. All these Old Testament references explaining what was there in the New, in the, all, explaining what was in the Old Testament. All these New Testament writers telling us what these things meant because without them, this would, the Old Testament just makes absolutely no sense. It's a, it's a book without an ending. Every part of the word of God is to be received and received with love, received with thanksgiving. It's a rich treasure. It's a mine of, of precious truths. Now, I am, uh, I'm not a wine drinker. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but every now and then you get a picture of, of these people who are wine connoisseurs and they get that bottle and they look at it and they just, oh yes, that's a marvelous bottle. This is a marvelous vintage. And you, they take out the cork and, oh yeah, that, that's the, the aroma. That's just wonderful. Ah, the bouquet. Yes, yes. And, they, and they're very careful about how they pour it into the glass. They don't just drop it in there. It's, it's poured on an angle. And it's then it, you swish it around the glass and then, and then they drink it. They say, well, that's a lot of silliness. They love what they're doing. And they can tell you a lot about what's inside that bottle because they love what's in the bottle. Well, in the same way, that should be the way we are with the Word of God. What a fragrant aroma it should bring to us because it's the fragrance of life. It's the Word of God. It's God speaking to us. It, it's a mine of precious truth. The truth is there. and We, we continue to, to dig and dig. And the more we dig, the more we find. And so he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what? In all wisdom. <laughs> oh, 
Oh my. In all wisdom, and that gets along with what he prayed for uh, them in, in chapter 1 and verse 9, that they would have a knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There's the key to the wisdom, the spiritual understanding. And it's also a key to the type of wisdom he's referring to. We remember a very young king, the son of David, Solomon. Uh, He might not have been past his teen years when he became king of Israel. Very young man. And he was told by God to ask for what he needed. And in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9, the young king Solomon asked the Lord, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge the people. And the next part is very key. That I may discern between good and bad. In Proverbs chapter 2, in verses 6 through 7, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And he is a shield to those who walk uprightly. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge. Here's the word. And understanding. And he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. We can think of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Where in Ephesians 1 and verse 17, that he said, he prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And Jesus in John 17 and verse 3 in his high priestly prayer says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. James tells us about uh, this wisdom in in James chapter 3 and and verse 17. He says of this wisdom, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and oh my, without Hypocrisy. The word of God should be read then with a with a hunger for wisdom. Yet there are people who are reading, who are studying the Bible, and looking for something that will advance their own ambition. Of people who are obsessed with end times and events a newspaper in one hand, a Bible in the other kind of thing. Those who pull a little from here and a little from there and a little from here and a little from there and maybe even put up some charts and say, look, this is it. Isn't it kind of funny? Jesus said, no man knows the day and the hour. And everybody said, oh yeah, that's true, that's true. But then the very next thing you see Oh, well, here's this in the news, and this agrees with this, and here's this in the news, and this agrees with this, and now we've got this, this, this whole plan and scheme 
and charts that we put together of these different events. Uh, it is a fool's errand. It's been done over and over and over and over again. Every time there's a conflict, you realize before we went into the Revolutionary War, there were people who were saying, this is it. When it came to the World War One, this is it. The Civil War, this is it. World War Two, this is it. Oh, Korea, you know, well, that's over there, and that can start this, this, and that. <laughs> Glenn Beck going on the other day about Gog and Magog. You know, they're in the Bible, and that's Russia, and that's and that's Iran. All right, you. <laughs> You want to take that kind of information from a Mormon, go right ahead, but I'd rather deal with a Christian when it comes to knowing the Word of God, and sometimes Christians don't do very well. You know, prophecy is a very big business. Sells a lot of Bibles, sells a lot of books. So does health and wealth. Some people read the Bible with the idea that they're looking for an excuse not to believe. But there are others who read the Bible only so they can find words that please them. Those who, those who have verses that mean something only to them. Their situation or desires. I heard someone a few weeks ago saying, well, the Tom tells us that God will give us the desires of our hearts. And so the fellow who was counseling said, well, what if the counsel of your heart is to cut off your right arm? There has to be an understanding. There has to be a, a context to these things. Uh, I, I think of uh, uh, quite a popular, if you will, uh, televangelist years ago he's, he's talking about how he wanted uh, he had a desire to have a ranch and, and I'm not talking about the dressing but, but he didn't know what to do about it and, and then he read in Habakkuk and in Habakkuk 2 and verse 1 he said uh, the Lord said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets. So he, he wrote down exactly what he wanted. And, and then three months later, a, a real estate agent came and said, there's a ranch for sale over here. And it was exactly it. He absolutely took the word of God and mangled it. Which is not an uncommon practice for this one. But in order to understand Habakkuk, Chapter 2 and verse 1, you have to go back to chapter 1 and verse 12. And the complaint that he was giving about the prosperity of the wicked and, and the righteous seem to be suffering. And then he begins chapter 2, or actually chapter 2 should be the continuation of chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, I'll stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch and see. He will say to me and what he will say to me, and then I will answer when I am corrected. 
And then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is not yet for the appointed time, but at the end it will speak. You see, it has nothing to do with you writing down what your little desire is on earth. But it's all about Christ. And he even finishes it, that the just shall live by faith. Another one that's, again, is, is, you know, I come off sounding like I'm Mr. Negative. But you get put in these positions by people who take the word of God and make it seem like it's just a, a, a little pile of clay and you can mold it into just about what you want to do. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. Man, that became that was a craze just a few years ago. It actually launched a whole industry. I'm sure you, you've probably heard it repeated over and over again. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for good and, and not for evil. And, and on and on it goes. And You know, in a consumerist nation, nation like we have, the first thing people think about is, Oh, he's talking about temporal good. Yeah. I'm going to have this and I'm going to have that and I'm just going to have a great life kind of thing. It's amazing how, as Paul tells us in the beginning of, of this chapter, to set our minds on things above and we read a promise from God and all of a sudden we're looking on earth. This Jeremiah 29 verse 11, it's a... This verse is a great message of hope, particularly against the backdrop of which it was written. Of those days, they speak of a better time coming, a wonderful future that God has planned for his faithful people. Yet to take this to claim as your promise of great things in this life, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And they take that all by itself and they look at that and say, well, there it is. I've got a claim, a promise that I can claim for the here and now. Good things for today, prosperity, abounding temporal blessings. But God was speaking to a faithful yet small remnant of God's chosen people. They were in exile. They were forcefully taken to another country, living under a different king. It was a time of confusion and suffering and not much hope. So you have to put it all in its, its place. So in 29 verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord uh, for it, for in its peace you'll have peace. There's the temporal things he's telling them to do. You're in exile, you're in this place, this town. It's not your town, but you're living there, so make the most of that place that you're living in. Seek the peace of the city 
where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for its peace. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely in my name and have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, said the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your hearts. I will be found for you, by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. Now that is not a promise when you look at that of, hey, zippity-doo-dah, happy days are here again for us. We're going to have nothing but earthly prosperity. And what is it saying to us today? Well, as those who were given hope in their exile situation, this is for believers today in this, especially a future and a hope. What's the future and the hope we have? It is in Christ Jesus. In Christ, in the salvation through faith that we have in him. That's the ultimate plan of eternal redemption. Not a deliverance from bad things here and now. But as Paul wrote in Philippians 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we would, should do when we look at this. It's a picture of our deliverance. We are exiles here in this world. And who's going to gather us? Christ is going to gather us. And what's going to happen? He will take his people. He will give his people a new heaven and new earth. That's the hope and the promise. See, we're to think on the things above, not put every promise down to the earth and diminish it in its glory and its, its scope. You see, though, the nature of man, as soon as he gets a promise like that, oh, this is earthly. This is of the earth. These are promises of, of temporal goodness. But if we're thinking of things above, then we can read and see. If our mind's set on that, which is truly, here's, here's Christ for us being portrayed in Jeremiah 29 as well, but that's not mentioned and that's sad. And so, yes, let the peace of God rule and reign in your hearts. And also, by all means, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Not in the wisdom of the world, not in the desires of the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. Let's stand together for prayer.